0: Hello and welcome to Things I Read for My Girlfriend to Fall Asleep, a mini podcast type thing where I read articles from various journals and sources, hopefully boring ones, to guide my lovely girlfriend into dreamland wherever she may be. If you're listening to this and are not my girlfriend, I'm glad to have you in the audience and hope this series can be some help to you as well. episode, I'll be reading three articles from Scientific American, volume 141, number 6, from December 1929. I haven't read these articles yet myself, so hopefully they're dry enough to bore you to sleep. Chapter 1, from the archaeologist's notebook. Scythian bronzes. The Scythians were a group of warlike Iranian tribes mixed with Mongolians that overran southern Russia and southern Siberia. Greek influence was not able to kill the viral Scythian style, which, even when elaborated, remains purely Asiatic. The problem of the Scythian bronzes is a very difficult one, and museums seek eagerly for them. The Metropolitan Museum of Art has many examples of them dating from the 3rd and 4th century AD. We illustrate two of them, first, a kneeling deer in bronze, and a second, a pair of rams kneeling on a little cart. Both rams and cart are of silver, which, like gold, is rare among the Scythian finds, which came from China and Siberia in reality, because of early and thorough plundering. The significance of kneeling animals is not clear, but it has been suggested that they represent animals already slaughtered and ready for the sacrifices. Archaeology affords endless opportunity for study. Primitive art solves the secrets of food distribution. Scientists are solving the problem of when and where various food plants were first cultivated. The origin of many is now definitely known according to researchers on the staff of the Field Museum of Natural History. Others, however, are still in dispute. How some of these problems are solved is illustrated by exhibits at the Field Museum. For example, in the last few years, scientists have established through the unearthing of some very ancient pottery on the coast of Peru that certain plants are indigenous to the American continents and not the result of importation by the European settlers. These pots made many centuries before the discovery of America by the white man, are modeled in the shapes of various plants and thus prove that those plants were grown on this side of the world in those early days, according to Dr. William M. McGovern, former assistant curator of Southern American and Mexican ethnology at the museum. Among the plants which the Field Museum collection proves are indigenous to America are peanuts, maize, squashes, pumpkins, beans, potatoes, and the poisonous tuber called mandioca, from which tapioca is made. All of these have been used as models for the shape or the decorations of the pottery. From other sources, it is known that pineapples, tobacco, tomatoes, chocolate, and coca, from which cocaine is made, originated in the Americas. On the other hand, watermelon, believed by most people to be a 100% American product of our southern states, apparently originated thousands of years ago in Africa, says Dr. McGovern, for remains of watermelons and their seeds have been discovered in tombs of ancient Egypt. The False Pyramid of Medum The Museum of the University of Pennsylvania has received permission from the Egyptian government to carry on archaeological work at Medum in Egypt and has organized an expedition which began excavation on that site in November. The expedition will be under the leadership of Alan Rowe says Director Jane and will be conducted under the auspices of the Eklund Brinton Cox Jr. Foundation which was established for the support of the Egyptian section of the University Museum. And for the furtherance of field work in egypt mr Rowe has been serving since 1925 as field director of the university museum's expedition to bayesian and palestine with the organization of the new egyptian expedition however the work at Bazin, in which the museum has been engaged for seven years will be temporarily suspended medum lies in the libyan desert roughly between the northern end of the fayum and the river nile some 50 odd miles south of cairo it is a site which offers great possibilities, not only for fresh contributions to existing knowledge in Egyptian research, but also for the collection of interesting and valuable material. To the north of Medum, and in the following order, from south to north, lie the ancient and middle empire pyramid sites of Lisht, Dashur, Saqqara, Abu Sir, Saweet el-Aryan, Giza, and Abu Roche, while to the south are the middle empire pyramid sites of Ilahun and Hawara. All these sites really form one continuous royal cemetery nearly 60 miles in length on the western side of the Nile. In its work at Medum, which is believed to be chiefly a fourth dynasty site dating onwards from about 2930 BC, the University Museum expeditions will concentrate on the excavation of a pyramid called by the Arabs El Haram El Kadab, or the False Pyramid, and described in a report from Mr. Rowe as the most important structure visible on the site. The false pyramid, in quotes, Mr. Rowe's report states, quote, is of three, originally seven, receding stories, which, according to Professor George Steindorf of Leipzig, rise to a height of 214 feet 8 inches in steep stages. The first story is 81 feet 6 inches high, the second, 98 feet 11 inches high, and the third, now almost destroyed, is 34 feet 3 inches high. He continues, Professor W. M. Petrie of the British School of Archaeology points out that the pyramid was built cumulatively, that is to say, in seven successive coats, each of which bore a finished-dressed face around a central Mastaba tomb. He states that the stepped stories were originally filled out. Early Man in North Arabia The Captain Marshall Field North Arabian Desert Expedition, under the leadership of the writer, A. Mr. Henry Field, assistant curator of the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, covered thousands of miles between Baghdad and the Hejaz Railway in search of archaeological information. Many thousands of years ago, this desert was fertile and well-watered and able to support a semi-nomadic population. Thousands of flint implements scattered over the desert prove the existence of primitive man in various historic phases of culture two photographs show fortresses built by Roman legions for protection from Bedouin marauders. Khazar Azrak was visited by the expedition to make plans, drawings, and photographs of the buildings. The upper photograph shows myself directing the work of removing a door lintel inscribed in Greek characters, which may give the date of the Roman occupation of Khazar Berka, the most eastern outpost of the Rosen Empire. Khazar Burka stands today more than 100 miles from wells containing water although in the rainy season, there's often water in the reservoir built by the Roman legions. Much valuable archaeological data was collected. Thousands of photographs of the various sites visited and of the modern Bedouins were obtained. In fact, a whole new light has been thrown on the early history of the North Arabian desert, and the results suggest that this area may have lain in prehistoric times on one of the main lines of migration between east and west. It is now possible to state with absolute certainty that man in a prehistoric phase of culture inhabited this North Arabian or Syrian desert over a long period of time. Marble Sculpture in the Ultraviolet Ray The invisible ultraviolet rays are at the cold end of the solar spectrum. When objects are exposed to this light, they tend in varying degrees either to fluoresce or to reflect the rays. In the case of fluorescence, substances which under normal conditions are white might appear yellow, blue, or any other color when exposed to ultraviolet light. Perhaps no works of art through the ages have been so sought for and cherished as fine marble sculptures. The temptation to produce forgeries, to copy, or to repair has attracted skillful artists and artisans. For this reason, in the study of the physical characteristics of museum exhibits, no material seems to offer more interesting possibilities than marble. With continued exposure to the elements, the surface of marble is changed And gradually because of penetration from the surface chemical action proceeds a short distance into the body of the marble we might therefore expect that the appearance of old marble under the ultraviolet ray would be different from that of freshly cut marble or marble which has been recut the surface of which has not been changed by chemical action and this in fact has been demonstrated by experiments after additional preliminary experimental work with marbles of various periods a group of test examples was submitted in all cases, the conclusions based on the use of the ultraviolet light were identical with those which had already been reached either on external evidence or by reasons of style. Both old and new pieces were submitted without any information whatsoever concerning the age of the specimens. Examined under the ultraviolet rays, the genuine pieces were readily distinguished from those which were more modern than they purported to be. The Little Maiden by Decena, a marble statuette in the archaic Roman style see scientific american for october 1929 although its surface had been altered by baking the marble and then pitting it with a ragged stone was shown by the test to have been made from recently cut marble in addition the three portions into which the sculpture had been broken were found to be part of the same piece of marble as with all new things possibilities of which have not been thoroughly probed it may be supposed that the ultraviolet light will be a panacea for all troubles But just as with the x-ray, it requires a wide experience with varying cases and no less careful judgment. Our experiments show that the ultraviolet rays will be of very great assistance in establishing the age of marble. That the ultraviolet rays have possibilities which are not limited to this field alone, we are learning from our studies. This ends our first chapter. If you are still with us, we'll be moving on to Chapter 2, The Month in Medical Science, Progress in the Medical and Surgical Fields liver and iron and anemia years ago when girls lived largely in indoor life there was a great frequency of a disease called chlorosis or the green sickness as costumes have changed to permit more freedom of motion and as women have come to take up outdoor sports this disease has practically disappeared and is rarely seen by a modern physician the chief symptom of chlorosis is the deficiency of red blood cells and of the red coloring matter in the blood producing a condition called secondary anemia. It used to be the custom to treat secondary anemia by giving iron, which has the value of stimulating the formation of the red coloring matter. Small doses of arsenic were used with the idea that they aided the bone marrow in producing red blood cells. A few years ago, investigators in the laboratory of the University of Rochester, New York, found that animals could be caused to have some new blood very promptly after they had been submitted to hemorrhages by feeding them with meats. Of all the meat substances available, Liver and kidney seems to be superior. It was generally thought that this action was due to the fact that these tissues are rich in iron. On the basis of this work, however, Boston investigators proved that extracts of liver had some special function in stimulating the formation of blood and in preventing the destruction of red blood cells in the body. As a result of their work, pernicious anemia, formerly an incurable disease, has been brought under control. It was thought at first that the feeding of liver would be equally satisfactory for controlling the secondary anemias, but liver seems to have failed somewhat in this regard when used either in the form of raw liver or in liver extract. Recently, Drs. Chester S. Kiefer and C.S. Yang of the Peking Union Medical College in China studied the question of secondary anemia to find out whether liver alone or iron alone would be as effective as both used together in cases of secondary anemia. They tested their methods on persons recovering after blood transfusions, after surgical operations and hemorrhages, and after hookworm disease. In hookworm disease, there is an anemia which apparently is due to the fact that the person with hookworm seldom eats enough of anything, and certainly not enough of the vital nutritive substances. The investigators found that iron was effective in bringing about increased regeneration of the red coloring matter in the blood in patients with secondary anemia. When liver and iron were given in combination, the increase was more rapid than when either was given alone. The results were particularly noticeable in the cases of persons with hookworm infestation. Eye examinations of children. Practically every modern school now arranges for regular examination of the eyes of children to make sure that the child is not backward in its work because... (laughs) Sorry. Um to make sure that the child is not backward in its work because it does not see the blackboard or the books. In many schools, the system has been so thoroughly worked out that it is a relatively simple matter to test a great number of children. Investigations by the National Society for the Prevention of Blindness have shown that there were from six to 12% of children in schools who have defective eyes. I'm sorry, you can just really tell these articles are from 1929, calling the eyes defective in children backwards. Anyway, resuming reading, Dr. Frank H. Rodin is convinced that such examinations should be made by the regular medical officers of the schools and that they can be assisted in the routine by the school nurse and the teachers. In the routine examinations, children are examined in groups of 10. First, the doctor looks over the eyes to make sure that there are no visible diseases. For small children, the Snellen chart with the letter E is commonly used. The child is asked to read the second line, known as the 20-20 line, because normal vision demands the ability to read this line at a distance of 20 feet. If the child cannot reach this line, it is then asked to read the top line and then the smaller ones. In most instances, when defective vision is found, the child is referred to a specialist in the diseases of the eye in order that it may be properly treated. Ringworm of the Feet More and more as the gymnasium, the swimming pool, and the golf club have spread throughout the land, infections of the feet have become prevalent. The most widespread of infections is the ringworm. See also page 442 of the November 1929 edition of Scientific American. Ringworm, which causes breaking down of the skin, particularly between the toes, itching, and in some cases, such destruction of the tissue as to produce pain and secondary infection. Among the measures used to overcome such infection are scrubbing of floors with antiseptic substances, insistence on the use of individual slippers or paper slippers by all who use the showers, and the application of measures directly to the infestation. Unfortunately, it's quite easy for people with ringworm of the feet to become reinfected from their own clothing, unless it is thoroughly washed when it is removed. Recently, Drs. C. M. Williams and E. A. Barthel have shown that it is possible to believe that one has recovered from the condition and then to become reinfected from very small foci of infestation around the toenails. Indeed, they found by examination of clippings of the nails in the feet of people who were still infected, that almost every one of them had some remnants of infection about the nails. When the scrapings are examined under the microscope after being suitably prepared, the organism that causes the trouble can easily be seen. Obviously, it is important to be sure that every possible foci of infestation have been removed before the individual can consider himself cured. There are a lot of really gross pictures in this article, by the way. Nervous baldness. It has long been known that severe or strain is sometimes accompanied by a sudden falling of patches of hair from the head. One of the most interesting cases of this type has been recently reported by Dr. R.B. Rogers of Nina, Wisconsin. In the case mentioned the father of three children had suddenly lost great patches of hair after the birth of each child in the family thus he had his first attack in 1915 his second in 1920 and the third in 1929 a rather short section garage deaths the united states is not the only country which is greatly concerned with the number of deaths that take place from automobile exhaust gas or from other chemical hazards in the motor industry in Germany, special attention has been given to this subject in recent years. Dr. O. Marienfeld finds that there were 242 deaths in garages in Prussia during 1926, most of them from carbon monoxide gas, but some of them from benzene or benzol poisoning, and a few from electrocution while working on cars with electric wires. With the usual German thoroughness, the author prepares an outline for the investigation of safety of working conditions in garages. The outline calls for inspection of the windows as to whether they are open or closed, ventilation, gas heating, electric wiring, temperature, the place where the body is found in relationship to the car, odors, smokiness of the atmosphere, and many similar factors. This ends uh, December 1929's Advances in Medical Science. So, we will be moving on to our final article of this episode. Chapter 3. Giant Airplanes. Plans for the future and present successful tests portend a new era in heavier-than-air flying. Are we entering an era of giant airplanes? Will air transport of the near future be conducted in craft of wing-spread payload and horsepower far in excess of those now associated with passenger planes in the United States? There now seems to be a basis for an affirmative answer to both questions. In Europe, at any rate, there is a definitive trend toward planes of large capacities. The tendency is not confined to isolated instances or to single countries. Germany, with Dr. Dornier's huge number 10-10, The largest of the big craft to have reached the stage of completion or near-completion and the biggest of the Junkers planes and Rohrbach flying boats is perhaps in the van of this movement, but Italy presses close, and Switzerland, Great Britain, France, and Spain are all at work on monsters of the air. At least two major contentions lie behind this movement. The proponents of big planes hold, first, that in them, the factor of safety is increased, and secondly, that they are economically advantageous, since... With increased size, the possible payload increases in higher ratio than does the total weight. Both of these advantages have been claimed for the number 10, which astonished the air-minded world by its excellent performance under test last summer, when its 12 motors of 525 horsepower each lifted its great bulk from the surface of Lake Constance in 30 seconds. The safety factors stressed by its designers include a well-designed flying boat hull built to withstand wind currents strong enough to cause in nautical parlance a sea force of Category 3 or Category 4. Its height from the surface of water, which brings the low point of the propeller sweep 22 feet above the smooth sea, and room completely to separate piloting and navigation compartments from the passenger portion of the ship, leaving the control personnel entirely undisturbed in the performance of their duties. With a useful load of 44,000 pounds and a payload of 22,000 pounds, the Mighty number 10 should be capable of long-range flights on a profitable basis. It can accommodate 100 passengers. So convincing have been its demonstration flights that the Lufthansa has already ordered companionships, while Italy has also placed an order for a counterpart. Uh, also, it's really interesting in the figures in this uh, in this article. The planes, they're shaped like boats with wings, I guess, in the event of a crash landing on water, they were equipped to, you know, seem seem like boats and be able to to move along the sea. they keep saying these, like, flying boat hulls, so just an interesting visual. Anyway, moving on. This giant is primarily intended for long-range cruises in Europe. The North Sea and the Mediterranean offer fertile fields for such operation, but it is altogether probable that a North Atlantic crossing will be made with refueling at the Azores and the West Indies. Flying boats of this and the Rohrbach mate, also built on a large scale, are to be put in operation on Germany's proposed South Atlantic service, where weather conditions present a more favorable average aspect than over the more northerly ocean. The number 10 is regarded by Dr. Dornier as but a forerunner of still larger and mightier craft, and by no means the ultimate in airplane size. It was he who, about two years ago, in an address to England, exploded theories long held that there was an upward limit to the size of heavier than air types. He demonstrated that resistance did not increase in proportion to the stepping up of size, and that aerodynamically, planes of enormous wing spread and wing thickness need not be confined to the dreams of the visionary, but can become practical realities. Furnishing the proof of the pudding, his number 10, with a hull of 130 feet long, has wings with the leading edges thicker than the depth of many an airplane fuselage. Through the wing's access is had to the motor gondolas with their striking arrangement of motors in tandem, combining with tractor and pusher to furnish the needed 6,300 horsepower. This tandem mounting, reducing as it does head resistance of a given number of motors to a marked degree, seems logical for giant planes the size of which may ultimately be restricted only by the limitations of available motive power. One of the two largest boats which have flown in America, purchased for passenger service on the lakes between Detroit and Cleveland, has the same motor arrangement. It is also a Dornier, built abroad but assembled at the Naval Aircraft Plant at Philadelphia. Its four motors develop a total of 1,700 horsepower, giving a top speed of 135 miles an hour and a cruising speed of 110 miles. In its test flights over the delaware river in september it flew with capacity load at 120 miles an hour it will carry 30 passengers and its wing spread is 90 feet another interesting sign of the big plane movement in america is the 32 place monoplane launched in september by anthony hg fokker this big passenger carrier considered as whole is the largest land plane yet built in america with a span of 99 feet and an overall length of 69 feet 10 inches it has a payload of 8,700 pounds, which indicates its high efficiency, as its total weight is only 22,500 pounds. Driven by four Pratt & Whitney Hornet motors, developing a total of 2,100 horsepower and mounted it in tandem in nacelles under the wings, it attained a high speed of 160 miles an hour and landed at 47 miles an hour in test flights at Tetraboro. Either the two-tractor or the two-pusher motors, the latter with three-bladed propellers, serve to keep the plane at a cruising speed of 110 miles. The interior arrangement allows for the seating of 30 passengers, in addition to the pilots, where 16 berths can be made for night use. Serving pantries, toilets, baggage compartments, etc. make it a sort of combined Pullman and club car of the air. Of arresting interest is also is the Junkers 30-passenger liner, which will probably be in flight by the time this issue reaches the public. The thick wing principle is here employed to the full, and the two 800 and two 400 horsepower motors are all housed in cells in the leading edge, streamlined into the wing surfaces. It seems probable that the Junkers oil-burning engine, which has had successful test flights, may be used. A speed of 105 miles per hour is expected. With a wingspan of 144 feet, this big craft has a fuselage length of 64.5 feet and a height of 17.4 feet. An auxiliary motor is used to control the rudders. The interior of the Junkers plane is arranged in two decks. The upper provides 30 seats for daytime use and 26 berths for night flying. The lower deck will be used as a freight compartment. The Swiss engineer, E. Manos, has also been at work on a plane of very large dimensions and with number. Of interesting novelties of design. The wingspan is given at 197 feet, the length at 120 feet, and the height at 32.8 feet. This particular plane is to have a total of 6,000 horsepower, but in this case the power is to be derived from only six enormous motors and these will be housed in an engine room and the six propellers operated by gearing. The arrangement is described as such that the failure of two or three motors would not stop the revolution of the propellers but would merely slow them down. Flying speeds of from 118 to 155 miles per hour are expected. Beds are to be provided for passengers, and the interior plans call for a restaurant and recreation rooms. One of the most consistent and enthusiastic advocates of the large plane is Gianni Caproni, the Italian designer. The creator of a number of very large bombing types during the war, he has devoted his attention for the last decade to designs on a grand scale. The intensive work along a definite pathway is to bear fruit and to bring the exceptionally large airplane to the American field for, through the participation of American capital in the organization of the Curtis Caproni Company, several big passenger planes are being pushed to completion. They were inspected recently by C.M. Keyes, who heads many of the Curtis interests, and he expressed his faith in their important role in flying in the United States. Signor Caproni has evolved three biplanes of progressively increasing size and designated them as the 1,000, 2,000, and 6,000 horsepower ships. The first of these has been constructed in quantity for use by the Italian Army. The second has been successfully passed on flight tests, and the largest is complete save for the installation of 1,000 horsepower motors. In addition, the designer places great faith in a 3,000-horsepower monoplane for which he claims an aerodynamic efficiency of 12.5-13. He believes that it can take off with a fuel load sufficient to give a maximum range of more than 6,000 miles, but very wisely, he does not advocate for such a procedure. Instead, for the transatlantic service, which he predicts will be in operation earlier than most people expect, he advocates stops for refueling, which would necessitate the Azores-West Indies route until such time, at any rate as the proposed sea drones prove their practicability. For service, say, from New York to the Pacific coast, Signor Caproni declares his 3,000-horsepower plane could carry 5 tons of payload at an average speed of 135 miles an hour, and requiring but one stop for refueling at some point about halfway along the route. The largest of his biplanes, the 6,000-horsepower craft, has a wing spread of 167 feet, He feels that this is big enough for the present and sees no necessity of exceeding it in size. He has designed a special form of tubing for machines for this type to be used in frame construction, for which advantages of hitherto unattained lightness combined with strength are claimed. A service from Rome to South America is quite possible with these giant machines. Spurred on by the evidences of the trend to big planes in Germany, Switzerland, and Italy, the British Air Ministry is bringing to completion a flying boat in the Blackburn works for which Compared with the number 10, a greater range with equal load is claimed. Little has been revealed of the details of the craft, but it is designed to have a 1,000-mile nonstop range, to carry 50 passengers, and to follow, in general principles of design, the present Nile type of the constructors. Size has been very greatly increased, however, over that model, as the sleeping accommodations for the passengers are to be in the wings. The ship itself is understood to be powered by three Rolls-Royce engines. The French have also entered the big plane race, and the Farman brothers, whose name must ever be associated with pioneering in aviation, plan two large models at home and in the American market. The smaller is to carry 25 passengers and be driven by two motors arranged in tandem, while the larger will be four-motored and have a passenger capacity of 50. A company for American production of these types is in the making. Even in Spain, where airplane production is not large but interest in aviation is intense, has fallen into line. There, a huge passenger craft is under construction by the Aeronautical Construction Company. It is a 50-passenger type, and it is to be powered by six motors of 750 horsepower each, mounted above the wing, which, as in the case of the Dornier design, is very thick and gives means of access to the engines. The plane is expected to have a useful load of 9 tons and a cruising radius of about 7,000 miles. New opportunities for profitable use and long-distance travel are opened up to these gigantic types by the demonstrated successes of refueling in the air. It is quite conceivable that airline services of the near future may send up such massive types carrying only one-half or one-third of their rated fuel capacity so as to make possible the transportation of more freeload in the form of freight or passengers, And have them met by quote nursing bottle planes at points well within the radius of the fuel load carried if for any reason the refueling contact should be difficult or should miscarry the plane would still have enough fuel in her tanks for a safe power landing normally however replenishment could take place in the air and the number of landings admittedly the operation of greatest hazard and wear could be much reduced the field for planes of great size seems to lie not only in more profitable service for long water and land routes in Europe and the United States, but also in speeding transportation in countries where it is now especially difficult or arduous. The Central and South American fields and those of Eastern Russia and Asia are particularly attractive in this regard. Railroad communication in many of these areas is non-existent or very inefficient. The important role of the airplane in such conditions has already been recognized by those most closely associated with the export side of the industry in this country. For example, F.B. Rentschler, president of the Aeronautical Chamber of Commerce, said recently in connection with the formation of an export subsidiary of the United Aircraft and Transport Corporation, which he also heads, that the railroad might well obviate the necessity of ever constructing railroads in land marked by present lack of transportation facilities or by notably difficult terrain. He was not referring to giant planes for which he did not see a demand yet. However, the 25, 50, or 100 passenger plane, with its equivalent freight carrying capacity, seems a logical type to employ as a substitute for railroad transport. The relative cost of establishing such an airway, even when using an expensive mammoth type of plane, and of building a railroad, is, of course, altogether in favor of the airway. When one considers the flexibility of the air service and its advantages of speed, it is not unreasonable to doubt that there will be much more extension of railroad building and land well suited to the use of the, ne- of the newer medium of the airways. That big types are to have an opportunity to prove their utility in the long-haul coastal service between the United States and her southern neighbors it was evidenced recently by the christening by Mrs. Herbert Hoover of the Buenos Aires, first of a fleet of 12 huge consolidated Commodore flying boats purchased by the New York, Rio, and Buenos Aires airline. passenger service to south america these big monoplanes with accommodations for 32 passengers are to follow each other into service at the rate of one a month until the full dozen has been delivered advocates of the large plane contend that in addition to its economic and safety advantages it also possibly greatly increased comfort for the air traveler the roominess of the pullman car the space in which to one can move around and stretch one's legs Are lacking even in the largest of our present plane types although the seating is fully as comfortable but the facilities are equaled or exceeded in the giant types which have been under discussion here and in them the air traveler can be as much at ease as in his office or his home and at the same time be eating up the miles at a rate of 120 per hour or better daily one sees the predictions of dreamers of the last century coming to practical realization The British have a tiny plane for the private flyer, having a wingspan of only 25 feet and designed to make 80 miles an hour and do 40 miles on a gallon of petrol. The Autogero came down at the national air races in a 20-foot circle, an almost perpendicular landing, and now Dr. Dornier and his fellow designers of Aerial Titans have shown that planes with wingspans in the neighborhood of 200 feet and with enough horsepower to drive a sizable steamship can take off with scores of passengers, rise, maneuver, and fly in a way to put but the most skillful of the birds to shame. This ends our final article. I am pretty tired. Uh, I hope you're asleep by now. And um, have a good night.